Welcome to the Undisclosed Addendum. Today we're talking about Episode 7 in our current series, The State versus Greg Lance. That episode is called Hurry Up and Wait, and if you haven't heard it yet, go back and listen. We will be right here waiting for you when you're done. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, host of the True Crime Review podcast, Crime Writers On, and one of the audio editors for Undisclosed. And with me today is Rabia Chaudhry. She's the host of this series and the New York Times bestselling author of Adnan's Story. Hey, Rabia. Hey, Rebecca. Also with us is Susan Simpson. She's an attorney and the blogger behind The View from LL2 and tweeter of all kinds of interesting facts. Hello, Susan. Hey, Rebecca. Well, before we start, I'm going to give a quick synopsis of this week's episode. In the episode, we hear about the 18-month period between the time of Greg's arrest and his trial. Right before his arrest, though, investigators place Robert Shepard, the man who they can last place the murder weapon with, under hypnosis, hoping he can remember to whom he gave the gun. In the meantime, they're looking for Greg, who moved to Florida with his wife Becky a few months earlier. And to find her, they interrogate her mother and find out she, Becky, has a doctor's appointment for her pregnancy. Investigators set up surveillance at the doctor's, but Becky and Greg never show up. After he's arrested, Greg hires John Nisbet and begins demanding a speedy trial, raising numerous motions for one, all were denied. Greg's bond is set at $1 million, and he's frustrated with his legal representation, further frustrated with the defense investigator that is appointed to his case, and when a public defender is appointed, is unhappy with him too. They clash on defense and trial strategy, and his lawyers ask the court to order a psych evaluation concerned about Greg's fitness to make strategic legal decisions. Greg is found competent, though, and eventually gets his way on two issues that end up having a profound impact on his defense, whether to present his affair partner Debbie as an alibi and whether to take a second-degree murder plea. Now, one of the things that was interesting to me at the start of this episode, Robbie, is you set it up straight at the beginning. You say that Greg is really, really smart. You, In fact, you say he's one of the smartest people you've met. Can you talk about that a little bit more? That really stuck out to me. Yeah, he's just really, I mean, first, I've always been struck by the fact that he can remember so many names, and not, not names of just like the seminal people in his case, but names of like a witness who had a brother, who had a... <laughs> cousin who might have visited the Heron farm once. I mean, like he is just, he, he just has an incredible memory. Um, but he's also, he's just really bright. Um, he can talk about a lot of things, you know, uh, he's also, you know, I found this letter, um, which doesn't have to do exactly what we're talking about, but it just kind of gives an example to me of the kind of person he is. And I think the letter is about 10 or 12 years old, or maybe even older than that, actually. Um, and he, he had a new cellmate and the cellmate was a transgender uh, individual, uh, a black transgender individual. And Greg writes this letter. Of course, all these letters that, you know, we hauled from his mother's house, they have no expectation that anybody else is going to ever be reading them, especially not lawyers who have a podcast and will be talking about it uh, 10, 15 years later. But he wrote the letter to his mom about this, um, his new cellmate. And this is way before the kind of awareness around pronouns, the, 
you know, more um, awareness around the danger to transgender lives and transgender rights. This is way before that. And he was just so um, just respectful. And he, in the entire letter, he referred to his cellmate with the proper pronoun as she. Uh, and it was just... You know, he talked about how, like, what a lovely person that, the, you know, his, his cellmate was, what she was. And I was just kind of struck at, like, you know, I, I maybe it's my own prejudice that I'm imagining a man raised in the 70s and 80s in the South, a white man raised, you know what I mean, like a Southern white man raised in the South, would have that kind of, like, respect and sensitivity and just, you know, decency um, in this situation. And so I just repeatedly have found these kinds of things in his letters and... Uh, and in talking to him, he's just really bright. He just, he's just smart. Um, having said that, though, I think it's interesting also, I have read, like, Ron Lax, who was this investigator, I think there was one memo that he wrote where he said that he, that, you know, Greg thinks he's smarter than he is or something like that. Like, sometimes I think it rubs people the wrong way. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's, to me, I mean, I, I'm really impressed with him. Hmm. Susan, it really surprised me that law enforcement used hypnosis against, uh, not against, but with this guy who was trying to remember where the gun ended up, uh, Shepard. What did you think about that? I wasn't surprised because uh, at least it's better than when they use psychics. <laughs> <laughs> they do that too. They'll usually like, often leave it off books as well because they don't want to reveal they're doing it. But they still do it. They still do today? Like that's still happening? I don't know about today, today, but like within the past 10 years, yeah. I yeah. definitely had a few case files where that was involved. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, on the one hand, I guess I kind of, I don't want to say harmless, but I see less danger in it in this particular situation. It doesn't seem like it's been like a false positive necessarily because they'd still need to find the gun or an actual connection. So I think in terms of like danger to individuals out there, I think it's relatively low risk. But in terms of like return, also probably a low hit there. I mean, you know, I thought about this and I here's what I'm trying to imagine. The danger with hypnosis is uh, and we've seen this in a lot of different cases is like, you know, especially, you know, those famous or infamous cases of the you know, people who alleged child abuse as children. And then they used hypnosis and false memories were planted doing that. Um, let's say Robert Shepard was put under and he said, oh, yeah, this guy who matches the description of Greg because the investigators have planted this or they've shown him pictures of Greg or something like that. I mean, or, or anybody like pick a suspect that they want to nail. Right. And if it's a state in which that then becomes admissible, that this guy now remembers, like, this is the person I sold it to. I think that's the danger there. Um, I think unless whatever evidence they can elicit from or whatever they can, I don't even know if it's evidence, uh, whatever they can elicit through a session like this, they can independently then verify. I think it is dangerous. Well, I think that's the point. That's the point of what they're trying to do is that if they yeah. get a lead, they can find the gun. I don't think they're trying to necessarily use the under hypnosis testimony. Oh, I th- I totally think in this case, I think if he had said, this is the this is what the guy looked like, and the description matched Greg. They absolutely would have had him testify. He had, to he that. had to explain like why and how he sold it, like why he had no records. I mean, yes, there is a danger. I'm not in favor of it, but like, yeah. Rebecca, you'll know this. What is the podcast I'm thinking of where they had these two boys go under hypnosis that totally didn't work? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> what is that a true crime podcast? podcast? Theory? 
Uh, no, it sounds like that's if Colin were here. He would totally know. What were they under hypnosis for? Do you remember? They saw something on the night of a girl went missing, um, mm. but it didn't work there either. I've never heard of it actually working. I'm sure maybe it's one case. <laughs> like hypnosis in theory, it could theoretically like maybe possibly work. But it I has worked. It's worked. Actually, you know, it has worked in a few very high profile cases, including like that one back from like the 70s or 80s where like an entire bus of children was hijacked along with the bus driver and the whole bus was buried underground or like oh, yeah. in a quarry. Well, so, oh, it's a crazy case. And so the bus driver, when they actually escaped, the bus driver, they used hypnosis for him to remember the the tags of the car of the perps. And that's how they found him. Yeah. So it has worked in a few different cases, but it's also been involved in um, at least 10 wrongful convictions. So it's like... For those who are curious, what uh, Robbie is referring to is a crazy case. I remember hearing about it on a different podcast and then going into a rabbit hole. It's the 1976 Chowchilla kidnapping. It happened in California uh, in 1976, obviously. Three kidnappers imprisoned their victims in a buried box truck, but they were kidnapped on a school bus. Um, And the after 16 hours underground, the driver and children were able to dig themselves out and escape. That was what happened in that case. It's crazy. It's a crazy case. <laughs> it's a crazy case. It's like the kind of thing that would be like a bad law and order plot, but it was real. And they were all captured. Yeah. Yeah. According to the U.S. Census, approximately 2 million burglaries are reported each year in the United States. Wow. That's kind of scary. Well, what's crazy is that only one in five homes have home security. Maybe that's because most companies don't make it easy to have home security. This is true. I have had, I have had experience. <laughs> it's a hassle, and also also pretty expensive, by the way. It is, and if like you're a renter or you move, you know, every three years, I live in the city. It can be hard to like even be able to have security system. Yeah, that's why Simplisafe is our top choice. First of all, Simplisafe protects every door, window, and room with 24/7 professional monitoring. They make it easy. There's no contract, hidden fees, or fine print. They've got a ton of awards from CNET to the New York Times Wirecutter. Their prices are fair and honest. It's it's affordable for once. See, so the Wirecutter is like my go-to for everything. If they recommend it. <laughs> It's good to go. (laughs) (laughs) You can get their around-the-clock monitoring for just $15 a month, which is just kind of amazing. But one thing that truly makes SimpliSafe stand out is their video verification technology. When other home security systems are triggered, a lot of the time police assume it's a false alarm and the call goes to the bottom of the list. But not with SimpliSafe. Using their video verification technology, they are able to visually confirm that the break-in is happening, allowing police to get to the scene 3.5 times faster than with other home security companies. So for our listeners, Simply Safe has a huge deal going on right now. Go to simplysafeundisclosed.com and get free shipping and a money-back guarantee. That's Simply Safe, S-I-M-P-L-I-S-A-F-E, undisclosed.com today. Simplysafeundisclosed.com. So, Rabia, you point out that Greg, after his arrest and then since then, has been suffering from depression. Is this something that he told you he grappled with before all of this went down, or is this after all of this went down? I mean, the way it sounds is as if if he did, he didn't know about it. He might have. I mean, like when I think about some of the, well, when, when I think about some of the letters that I've read when he's written about like to his mother about what life was like before and after. And also the circumstances in which he was raised were not optimal. Um, Mm. He was a, um, he calls himself a free range kid. 
raised very, I mean, his uh, parents got divorced when he was very, very young, I think two maybe. And his mother moved away to another, moved to Florida with her new husband. And he was raised um, with his brothers by his father, who was also very not available. And so he ended up bouncing around to different, I think, different relatives as well. So maybe, he, I mean, maybe he did. I don't know. I think, but this was the, after he was arrested, apparently what happened was he just started having trouble getting up. He would just sleep for like 12, 14 hours. He just couldn't get up. And he, I mean, the, the prison mostly didn't care, except that it meant he was late for work. And then when they kind of dug in a little further, they, they recognized they had depression. So, you know, I, if, if he had it before, it wasn't diagnosed. One thing I want to come back to in a minute is um, the series of evaluations that Greg had. He had two, but initially he had a first evaluation, a general competency evaluation, a stand trial. Is that routine in Tennessee? I'm actually not sure. Yeah, I don't know. Susan, is that something you know? I mean, is that something that's done? Like, I wouldn't say standard, but it's often something they'll get granted because it's uh, sort of a low risk, like, Return. The problem is, like, you don't allow it to happen. If the judge says no, it's an easy issue to appeal. So right. even if you think it's probably not going to be important or you're inclined to not allow it you think it's a waste, it's easier just to go ahead and grant it um, just so, yeah, on appeal. They're not like, well, look what the judge did and he easily would have found this problem and therefore the whole trial's bunk. Right. One of the things that was most interesting to me about this episode, it was kind of like the heart of the episode for me, was the way Greg dealt with his defense and his attorneys. Mm. He didn't really let his attorneys handle the defense themselves. He wanted to manage different aspects of it. It seems like a good thing, generally speaking, especially when you know in retrospect that it didn't turn out well for the client. And the question very often is like, why didn't anyone say anything? This attorney wasn't doing this or that or this. But he did this with everything. Um, and I'm curious, like, how it plays with lawyers. Do attorneys welcome feedback from clients? Like, there's a line there, right, where an attorney wants to say to a client, like, dude, you're not a lawyer. <laughs> we know what we're doing. And Greg seems to be have been very comfortable crossing those lines. But I'm not sure what you guys think in terms of where he landed on that spectrum. I mean, look, uh, you know, along with whatever was in the episode, there are just so many, so many letters that Greg has written to his lawyers in which he's made lists in these letters and, and memos. He's written lists of maybe like 50 tasks, 50 investigative tasks that he wants them to do, or, or, you know, a list of this many people he wants them to talk to. I mean, it's, and so, and you're talking about, obviously lawyers have limited time. Um, the investigator, Ronald Lacks, as far as I could tell he didn't he I thought he did a pretty good job to be honest his file is pretty thorough and how you know the people he spoke to and all the leads he followed up on and um having said that there were certainly things that were overlooked that if like there were maybe a few people that you know Greg was right about they should have spoken to back then and they didn't but they only would have caught those people if they had spoken to all 150 that Greg, Greg had demanded. I mean, it's hard. I mean, like, you know, I think about like other cases in, in which clients don't advocate for themselves at all. Here, Greg really did. Um, and I think to you have to be, in, I think, I don't know. I, I don't know exactly what the line is, but I think a client should know what's happening. They should have some say in what's happening. But on in aspects of like legal strategy, there should be some level of deference to attorneys. But I don't know, Susan, what do you think? I had a case once where I was struggling with something similar and uh, an older, wiser attorney told me um, something that I try to remember now, which is that sometimes you can't save a client from themselves. Mm -hmm. 
There are some yeah. times that there's nothing you can do to make things better because the client isn't capable of helping themselves. And as a attorney, your job is to try and make them help themselves and to try and do what you can to get things in a working position, but it's not always possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and for Greg and for others in the position, it's definitely a catch-22. If you don't advocate for yourself, you maybe get lost in the system forever, and there's no guarantee anyone's ever coming looking for you. But if you do advocate for yourself, there's a risk that you're going to interfere with people who are genuinely trying to help you and are better equipped to do it. That's interesting. I mean, the other thing that that makes me think about is, you know, I my only like intersection with, um, you know, working with attorney to represent me is like in family matters, right? But even in that situation, sometimes, you know, you're either paying attorney and a lot of money, but in this case, even a public defender, like there is a a sense like this person's working for me. And I don't think there's a lot of perspective on exactly how much else like an attorney or a public defender or somebody else is doing that like they have multiple clients, you know, in the case of public defenders, dozens or in some states, hundreds of clients. And they can be present for the things they can be present for and not present for things they're not present for. And I can imagine that for someone in Greg's position, who's basically like, I did not do this, and I don't understand why that isn't 100% of your focus is helping me prove I didn't do it. I would understand that would be frustrating, but I also understand the lawyer who at some point might just be like, I cannot work with this person. I can't. I can't do my job with this constant interference. Yeah. You know? It I mean, breaks down the relationship between attorney and client. Um, like, you want your client involved. You want your client to – because the client – in most cases, whatever it's civil or criminal or whatever, they know the facts a lot of the time, or they know stuff that matters. And they may not know why it matters or not know why it's important. So they need to be able to give you those facts so you can figure out how to use it. So you need a really good, honest back and forth and a, like a vibrant discussion there. Like, hey, look, she look at this. Oh, I didn't think about that. Yeah, that's all fine. It's when the client starts doing things that are contrary to his own legal interests that everything starts to kind of get in this bad, you know, snowball effect. Yeah. I mean, look, I've had clients come, I mean, and this is completely in an immigration context where they're, they have their own legal strategy about how they want to adjust their status. Let's say they're completely undocumented or they're in some kind of limbo. And I know that number one, this is going to like either get them deported or it's not legal or whatever. And I just refuse to take the client. I mean, I just won't do it. Um, having said that, when you actually have an existing client, I mean, like the obligations are different in immigration matters, as long as you're not in front of a court, you can withdraw as counsel with um, like regular adjudication. But I mean, here it's like, you know, there were things like, for example, Greg's lawyers didn't hire a single expert. There's not a single defense expert in this case. Um, And he was right there, right? Like he could have, they could have done a better job. Um, And and there are many a times when you're reading the trial, you're like, oh my God, they missed like these incredible opportunities. But that's also they're human beings. I mean, it happens, especially in the course of this, like, you know, an active trial, you miss an opportunity to say something or point something out. I, I remember when I read the closing arguments in this, I... I was just like, God, you know, I mean, like, it's one of the, it wasn't bad as Gutierrez, for example, but it was pretty unstructured. And there was, they were not as prepared as Greg would have liked them to be, but they could never probably be as prepared as Greg. So there's that. Um, Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. But you know, on the big, the two big issues that we talked about in the episode, I think he might have been right on one and he was not right on the other one. That's how I feel about it. Hmm. Uh, One final question about this, but like his lawyer wanted to get rid of him and he wanted to get rid of his lawyer. There's like this mutual uh, like seeming dislike for that initial attorney-client relationship, right? 
Um, well, it's also about getting a, a better, a more guaranteed payment stream for the attorney. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Getting him paid. Right. It was interesting. So um, one of the things I have sort of tying to that is this second evaluation requested by Greg's attorneys because he feels like he's not able to work with them competently. That seemed like a red flag to me. Like his attorneys, were they trying to just get him to stop doing what he was doing by giving him this evaluation? What were they trying to prove to the court? Something about that felt really strange to me. You know, to me, what it seemed like, given what what, um, the one attorney Judd told the psych evaluator was almost like he was trying to get them to say, this guy is not competent enough to make his own legal, like, you know, to make his own decisions on legal strategy. So then they could have either Greg's family do it or somebody, you know what I mean? Or make it themselves like, and basically not follow what the, like they wanted a way out of being, they didn't want to do what Greg wanted. And so they wanted a way out. That's what it seemed like to me. Cause it was, they, Judd was pretty specific about what he was looking for. Hmm. What were your thoughts about that, Susan? Basically the same. They, they wanted, I mean, obviously there had been a breakdown in the client her relationship. The attorneys thought that their client was making a very dumb decision most of the time you're just like, well, you can't stop that. Like that's their call. But sometimes it's kind of a, I mean, that is another option. If you really think the client's making the totally wrong decision and you, you just can't get through to them, you could say, well, your honor, the, I don't think my client's capable of making the right decision. So let's make sure that they can actually decide what they're trying to decide here. And in this case, right. the testing was like, yep, they can decide that. So that's his call to make. <laughs> yeah. I mean, does this come down to, we're going to talk about these two big issues in a minute, but the red flag for me, it sounded like, and maybe it was just the order in which the, I sort of absorbed the information on the episode, was they wanted him to plea it out, and he wouldn't agree. And I, it just felt kind of draconian to me that it was like, you're not agreeing to do this thing, and so we're going to evaluate you with this, like, evaluation. Was a desired outcome there that he would, they'd be able to pressure him to take in the plea in some way, or that, that it would take well, the decision out of his hands in some way? As far as I know, I I can't determine the dates of when, because the the plea negotiations began verbally, and then there was a written offer close to trial, but, um, and the trial happened in October of 2000, but, um, and this evaluation, I think the second one happened either in late August or September, but the affidavit that his lawyer filed to get the court to order this was actually back in May. And to me, that I think, that was around the time they were arguing over the Debbie issue. So I don't know if it was that that triggered it or it was just a, a like a year's worth of, you know, being exhausted by Greg that did it. Um, but or it could be to get the, a better position for a plea bargain. Yeah. And, and I don't know. Like, again, it could be that they had already been having plea negotiations at that point. I just I'm not sure about that. So but yeah, that had been that took a from May to September. You know, that's how long that thing lasted. Now, Robbie, the, the two main issues that do come up between him and his legal team are the plea deal and the Debbie witness thing. Let's talk about the plea deal first. I think it's a little bit easier to tackle. You said a few minutes ago that you think he was right to fight on one and maybe not necessarily right to fight on the other. I'm assuming you meant the plea deal when you said he was right to fight on that. Was that right or am I wrong? Am I getting that wrong? Yeah. I mean, I, okay. given like what they offered and and to this day, you know, Greg and his family, and, and I get it. I mean, like, and I've heard this not just from him as a defendant, but other defendants as well. It's kind of like, you know, lawyers are like damned if you do, damned if you don't. If they really if they really advocate for a client to take the plea, then sometimes the client will feel like, oh, you just want to wash your hands of this and 
I'm the one who's going to spend the time in prison. But if they don't do it and then the client gets convicted, <laughs> then the client will be upset that my lawyer didn't fight for this harder uh, and convince me of it. So it's a hard position to be in. I think given the terms of the plea, you know, which he probably would have served us a few more years, it probably was the right thing to do. Um, at that point, he they didn't have, like, they didn't know every single thing, but he, they did know enough in the case that he knew that there were a number of people in his orbit who were going to testify against him. And also, he knew because he was not going to present Debbie. Uh, he should have known that he would have no way then in court to account for at least that part of the evening uh, of the night, you know, the murders. So, and he wasn't going to, he did want to testify. That was another point of contention. He wanted to testify. That was a fight between him and the lawyers. And they're like, nope, mm. you're not going to do that. Um, do you think so, it would have helped him or hurt him? I know that generally the rule of thumb is that it always you hurts. shouldn't. <laughs> Almost yeah. always. It always hurts. It's a very it narrow, hurts. narrow, sort. like there's times where you have to roll the dice on it, but most of the time it's always going to hurt. In this case, yeah. it could only hurt. What did Greg know that you couldn't get in through other evidence? Nothing. Yeah. But couldn't he get up there and say he doesn't know? That never works. That, that's there. never. Uh, yeah. It never works. Unless the, the hmm. client has something actually affirmatively to add to the evidence. I mean, it's you, you don't want to invite the jury to look into their character or their soul, make a judgment right. based on that. Right. I have been following Colin Miller's Twitter feed long enough to know that in some places there's a rule where if you take a plea, you cannot appeal later. Is this one of these places? Depends on, what the, plea, depends on what the plea says yeah. and how they structure okay. it. Okay. But gotcha, usually, gotcha. usually not. And I, I do know, I mean, this is like it's a painting with broad strokes, but, you know, one of the things that we talk about a lot is whether or not somebody who refuses to take a plea fights, says, I'm not going to do it because I didn't commit the crime. Yes, it's an easy case to make that like a guilty person would say that too, but isn't that exactly what we would all do? I mean, that I, I would probably do that if I, we've argued about this sometimes in my own podcast. Like if somebody offers you five years or 10 years for something that if you go to trial, you get 30 years for, but you know, you didn't do it. What do you do? And I always, I'm on the side of like, I would find it almost impossible to make a deal and admit something that I know I didn't do. And of course you've got Toby on the other end who's like, take the play, man. Take the play. <laughs> I mean, for me, the only answer to that question is you look at the evidence evaluate what you're being offered and what you think your chances are and make a decision based on that. But yeah. I mm. always tend to err on the side of if you can come home, come home. Right. Yeah. You know, I asked Greg, I said, you know, you were incarcerated for like, I mean, he was waiting trial for 18 months. You know, he's with a lot of other people who have been in and out of prison for like for years. I said, didn't they, didn't others advise you about taking a plea or not? He said, yeah, they did. They all told me to take the plea. He's like, but the thing is, they, he's like, I get it because they did what they were uh, convicted of or they took plea deals. And in many cases, they pled on lesser charges than, than the crimes they actually committed. He's like, so I couldn't take right. their advice. He's like, how am I going to take their advice? They're actual criminals. But how does he know that? Plenty of them could have been innocent because people take pleas that aren't guilty all the time. Probably, but I think there are also people in there who are like, dude, man, I, I got away with X, Y, Z when I took this plea and I got lucky, so you should take the plea too. I or probably, they were overcharged in the first place, so they bargained maybe. out something closer to what yeah. they should. Yeah, but you know, he's, again, this is like his first stint in prison and that's his perception. Yeah. So Susan, are you a hot sleeper or a cold sleeper? Do you sweat like in your sleep? What's I am a finicky, difficult sleeper. <laughs> Oh, are you really? Yeah. I get hot. I get cold. The whole spectrum. Okay. Well, that can be complicated. But here's the thing. 
Bold and Branch can actually respond to all those needs. Um, I've been using Bold and Branch sheets for about mm, two and a half years now, and I've have a number of sets, and I have the cotton ones. Well, they're all made of super soft cotton, but I have like the the regular cotton ones for the summer. And now as it's getting colder, I have pulled out the flannel sheets, and they are amazing. The flannels are amazing. I mean, they're all yes. super soft, but the the breathable and also warm combo is key and also very difficult to achieve. Yeah, and I also share a bed with. Well, my husband, but also nowadays our little man, two and a half, going on linebacker, and they are both quite sweaty. So having breathable sheets means I don't have to wash my sheets every other day. Bold and Branch sheets are soft, they're comfortable, they're stylish, and for a limited time, you can get their luxury flannel bedding to keep you cool sleepers warm, and because they breathe, keep the warm sleepers cool. And by the way, shipping is always free, and you can try them out for 30 nights risk-free. Right now, you get $50 off your first set of sheets at bowlandbranch.com with the promo code UNDISCLOSED. Get $50 off at bowlandbranch.com, promo code UNDISCLOSED. And by the way, as the holidays roll around, they make great gifts. They are packaged beautifully. So check it out, B-O-L-L and branch.com, and use the promo code UNDISCLOSED for $50 off. Well, let's talk about that big second issue, because I know I've got questions. Uh, the second issue is Debbie, or the woman that we are calling Debbie, which, by the way, good journalistic decision here. There's no public good in calling I see no reason for it. <laughs> there is no reason for it. Okay, so the woman we're calling Debbie, Debbie not Debbie, perhaps we should call her, there was an opportunity to present her at trial. She had an alternate version of the story about her night with Greg. She says they were together until the early morning hours, 4 a.m., which on its face is helpful because it provides him with a direct alibi to the murders. But Greg says, no, that's not what happened. I left earlier and basically says, like, yeah, I would have had time to commit the murders because I actually left much earlier. His lawyers want to put Debbie on the stand. Greg says no. This is a very tricky dilemma. And I'd love to hear both of your thoughts about it. Susan, I'm going to start with you, uh, you know, as the person who's like, and you're doing the podcast, but Robbie, I think, is a little closer to Greg and the story here. What do you think about the perils of putting Debbie on the stand, Greg's take versus his lawyer's take, and how it ultimately worked out. I would, as a, in the moment in the trial, I would want to have much more knowledge about Debbie. I would want to interview her closely. Um, I think I, it's a tough call, but it's one you cannot make as attorney until you get all the facts and you get a feel for the witness and what your defenses are going to be. I think I'd probably agree with Greg on this one, though, in the end, but with the caveat that maybe... I changed my mind after I got closer to it. Rabia? I think Greg was right on this one. I mean, first of all, you have a number of witness statements, including a statement by Eric Tanner, um, the morning of the murders, putting Greg at home around 1231 a.m. And this is the same Eric Tanner who will actually testify against him. Um, but he never changes that fact. And you have um, Greg saying the same thing. And you have his girlfriend, Becky, saying the same thing. And those are statements they gave the day of the murders. Um, so I think that's part of the thing is like, how do you then, how, how do you counter all of that? Were all of them lying? Are they all in on it then? Like, how do you, you see what I'm saying? Like, how are they going to deal with this, a trial then? But the other thing is, I think for Greg, it was like, what's right is right. <laughs> that's not what happened. I do believe, I mean, personally, that you got to put on what's closest to the truth uh, that you know, and what's right is right. And I, I have to agree with Greg on this one, although um, the other side of that is that then there's literally nobody who testifies for what he was doing between like 8 p.m. to 1 a.m. about. Right. 
I mean, I just have so many questions about this because Debbie seems super sure. And it makes me wonder if she's remembering a different time she spent a night with Greg. Was there a different time that you know of that that could have happened? She could be mistaking this encounter for a different encounter? Uh, as far as we know, as, as as far as Greg has told me, and this is the only time it's ever happened. Um, hmm. But it was two It was two years earlier. Right. Yeah. Right. And they... And they've been drinking. I mean, you know, I, so I, I don't, yeah. Yeah. So my second question here is about, so taking sort of the trickiness of it aside, I mean, part of me is like the Law and Order episode, the way it would play out is that she'd go on the stand and provide him with this alibi. And then, you know, he'd have the opportunity to say, you know, that's, I don't agree with that alibi, but I still said I didn't do it. And it might be an opportunity for the defense to look like their client's extra honest or something. Maybe that's just how it would play on TV. It probably <laughs> totally wouldn't work in real life. But my other question was the idea that the jury wouldn't like Debbie. Yeah. She's a single pregnant woman. And so she's going to rub them the wrong way or something. That was interesting to me. It, it is. I mean, like it, there was that, but also I'm guessing Lax is also thinking this is also a woman who had a one night stand. Right. And I, I, I'm guessing they're thinking that makes Greg look bad and it makes her look bad as a witness. Um, and this is true. That is reality. Mm. But was part of the prosecution's narrative that he was spending the night with another woman? Was that was that part of their narrative? Nope. They had no idea. Oh, so that didn't come up in court at all. At all. I see. So any, like, part of this timeline was not part of his trial at all? Nope. What was the up to 1 a.m. part of his timeline at trial? Well, we're going to be talking about I mean, the, yeah, we're going to be talking about trial. <laughs> gonna we're going to be talking about trial next week. Uh, I keep saying that like every week, but next week is definitely we're talking about the trial. Um, adding no Empty more promises. episodes, no more episodes. Um, yeah, but I mean, like it was just a hole. It was just a hole, and that happens all the time. Um, you know, like I'll, I always refer to Adnan's example, but for example, a big hole is like how did Adnan get in Hayes' car? When? At right. what point? Where right. there's, there's these holes and they exist a lot of times. Hmm. All right. Well, moving on. Uh, one of the things that was interesting to me is that Greg is a note keeper and a journal keeper. And he basically narrates and documents like every aspect and every communication he has around this case uh, in, this, in his journals. First of all, what did you think about these journals just in general as living documents? Is this something that he was doing before this case happened, or is this something he started doing when he became a suspect in a murder case? Yeah, no, I mean, I asked him, I said, did, have you always journaled? Is this like a habit? Was this a habit of yours? And he said no, but he said from the moment he was arrested, he realized, I mean, to him, he felt like, I think it was just kind of like, this is how he operated. He said, you know, if it's not on paper, it's it's not real. He's like, I just, he wanted to document every single thing. And he wanted, I mean, he's very, you know, there, there's letters to his mom where he says, you know, when you speak to the lawyers, make sure you record the conversations so that hmm. everybody knows what actually was said and what was agreed to. Um, he's, I think just very frantic about like nailing things down and having a record of them because he thinks that that can that could serve as evidence or something or maybe just I mean th these journals were not used for anything um they were just for his personal I think keeping track of what was happening and who was saying what when um uh, but there's also a lot of interesting stories in there about people he's meeting in prison um some names that in fact be important come up later um names in fact related to suspects that we're going to talk about later um and just other things that are happening. To me, it's one of the most interesting documents, I think, that I've looked at in the case. Um, and it stops, like, 
in November of 2000, and I almost kind of wish it went on, but in a way, it goes on through the years of letters, but um, but the journal is easier to absorb. Well, it's a gold mine for someone making a podcast about the case years later, yeah. but I'm curious about, you know, if... If someone representing Greg now, like how valuable would it be that he kept this real time account of everything that was going on, not for the purpose of like, you know, lying or faking it later, because you really can't when you're doing it in real time. You don't know how significant a conversation will be unless you go back and erase and edit. And this was these were handwritten journals, right? Yeah. So what do you think, Susan? Goldmine for podcasting and also potentially goldmine legally or just an interesting thing that this one guy happened to do? With the caveat that I'd want to make sure they're secure in the way they're doing it. I'd always prefer a client that records everything. Um, hmm. after, well, I'll take that back. <laughs> no taking notes on a criminal conspiracy, of course. But for a client after the fact who is documenting things carefully for the attorney, I mean, yeah, I I love that. <laughs> yeah. I will say this, though. He, I mean, he was very meticulous in keeping like his business records. I mean, like, you know, like the receipts and checks and cancel and like those kinds of things. So I think it's it was just it it kind of fell in line with that same habit. And his mother also just takes a lot of notes. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. There, There's like a phenomenon of people who document their life versus people who don't and do it well and are meticulous. Of course, I, the first person I think about in this case yeah. is Asia, who like kept her high school yeah. diaries. And that's always been so fascinating to me. Like, what do you? Who are you keeping this in posterity for? Like, if, I mean, if for the podcast, if Rebecca, are, if you, <laughs> exactly. But if you know you've been arrested for a murder, and you know you want to document everything that's going to happen, like certainly, if I were arrested today, like this would be a great thing to put in practice, knowing what could happen later. Greg obviously couldn't have imagined that. And I'm wondering, like, did he think he was doing this so that later, like, for instance, if he got a new lawyer, he could say, see, look here, on this day I did this, and on this day I talked to this person and nothing happened. Is that what he was thinking? Possibly, but from what I've seen in other cases of the defendants, I think a lot of it is loneliness. Yeah. They want to talk to so they have so many thoughts and fears and anxieties, and they got a lot of time to have all those thoughts and fears and anxieties going through their head. And this is one way they can explain them to someone even if it's just the paper and feel like they're not just uselessly running in circles right well coming back to debbie one thing that we talked about last week was how it did not look great for greg that he married becky so soon after the murders it it looked and it was you know it was a bad look for several reasons one of which being that the prosecution can claim that he did it so that she couldn't testify against him etc but this week we learn that Despite Debbie's unreliability about the timeline of their time together, she also recalls him telling her that he planned to get married very soon during their encounter. Um, So one question I have before you answer that is, is there any reason to believe that Greg was in touch with Debbie around before or after his arrest and they could have coordinated this story? I mean, there's... There's nothing to suggest it. And Lax asked her directly, and and she right. said she has not – forget the arrest. She hadn't been in contact with Greg since that night. Like, theoretically, he could have written to her, but they'd have a jail log of that, and they didn't, obviously. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, I think if they had coordinated, too, like, maybe her timeline <laughs> would have been correct, I mean, right? <laughs> I mean, that's um, – <laughs> but so I guess my question is, does this shift either one of your thinking about – the perceived weirdness of Greg's marriage. I mean, we know it was fast, but we also know this is how he got married before. But it sounds like, despite everyone saying no one knew, he actually was telling people, or at least he told this person. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, um, in some of Becky's statements, I think she told investigators, um, or I don't know if it was a defense investigator or the state investigators, but that uh, that they had been talking about marriage for a, you know a few months at least. And so, you know, for me, like, here, here's the way I think about it. If Greg had been, if Greg actually had been planning these murders for months and months and thought, okay, you know, Becky could be, you know, I'm going to make sure Becky can't testify against me. He, I don't think he would have waited till after the murders to marry her. He probably would have mar- married her earlier. Like, that, you know, that would have been easy to do. He could have done that uh, courthouse wedding months earlier if this was part of the plan. So I think it was just, you know, and I think he was... I don't know. He's just smarter than that, I guess, um, to, in terms of trying to cover up a crime. Um, so I, I just, I've always thought it was not always, but you know, I thought it was shady, but then I realized I just thought it was a bad look. It was just bad judgment, um, on his part, but it, it just, it just seems like, you know, what him and Becky had been saying that, yeah, they've been thinking about it anyways, was in fact true. I'm more curious about your perception of it. Cause I know it looked really shady to you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Obviously. Because Debbie had no way of knowing. Debbie had no way of knowing any of that. Right. But Greg happened. could have also just been telling Debbie that he was getting married soon so that she wouldn't expect more of a commitment from him than a one night stand. Right. Uh, that's interesting. <laughs> it could have just been like, yeah, this is really fun. Just FYI, I'm getting married soon. Never yeah. see you never again. Um, it could have been that. I I don't really like, I think the marriage looks bad, but it only looks bad because of what happened. Right. I think it's one of those things. It would have been weird no matter what. But it looks extra bad because of what happened. And, you know, I, I'm i not sure I buy the whole, like, when I saw what happened to the Kalisna cows, I realized that life is short right. kind of thing. Right. That seems a little bit like, and I'm not saying he's lying about it. I'm saying that people's memories about why they did things do change over time. And that is a very, very good story and one that perhaps he folded in and it became a memory because he said it a few times. Mm-hmm. I don't know, obviously. Um but I don't know. Something about Debbie is really interesting to me. She has no real stakes here. I don't think she thinks she's getting back together with Greg at this point, right? Oh, no. She hasn't no, talked she, to him for years. No, no. She she actually says in her statement to Lex, she's like, I have no romantic interest. It was just a sexual thing. But And she's known Greg for, at this point, quite like six. I mean, when they hooked up, she had known him for four years already. So they had served in National Guard together for four years. She likes Greg. She's attracted to him, but she's not interested in a relationship. Um, but at the same time, she told Lax, she's like, I want to I wanna testify. Put me on the stand. She wanted to go to bat for Greg. And Lax was like, nope. Yeah. Yeah. Because then they would have had to tell her to like omit a part of her story. And that's, you know, and they couldn't tell her to do that. Also, it's interesting. One thing Lax says in his, and I, and I you know, I'm, I don't know. I wonder... I don't know how old Lax was at this time. I don't know exactly what was going on here, but Lax flew out to speak to her. He didn't just like follow up with a phone call. He went to speak to her. And in that meeting, um, in the notes, he actually says something about, I didn't include this in the podcast, but he said something about um, that, you know, one thing he found disturbing about her, that he felt like she put sexual innuendo in everything she was saying. Hmm. Now, that sounds like a very sexist thing to say. <laughs> I've seen that. Totally. It's like, really, dude? Like, I'm like, are we? Was it that, or were you thinking of sex every time you talked to her, and you blamed it on her? Exactly. Yeah, that's what I'm. I'm like, you flew out to meet this. Well, he woman. had to. I mean, they did things right with her. Like, even if you don't want to call her, she's an alibi witness. So even if you think it's terrible for your case, you do what they did, and vetting it as hard as you can. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, 
I also just don't I don't like that. I don't like that someone would make a note of that. You know what I mean? Like there yeah. there are less sexist ways to record I mean, your perceptions. <laughs> in 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 the nicest way he could, he he made judgments about her morality. Um mm. without actually calling her, you know, the names yeah. that he's probably thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't think that Greg was preemptively uh, covering his bases. Like, I don't think he was like, all right, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sleep with this woman. Go I'm kill them. tell her I'm getting <laughs> married so that after I go kill them, when I immediately marry Becky, it will be a surprise to no one. Because I don't think he was thinking that years later she would be contacted as a potential alibi witness in his trial. And if he was thinking that, why wouldn't he just like give her a sleeping pill and pretend like he left that room at six o'clock in the morning. You know what I mean? There are better ways to cover yeah. your bases than mentioning casually well, a potential you know, marriage to someone. The thing that Lax ends that his memo with um, after that, that meeting is because he's really disturbed because for him, he's like the, both these scenarios suck, but he's like, you know, if instead of thinking that maybe she's literally just misremembering, like, you know, they got drunk, they had sex a couple times, she passed out. And she didn't remember what time Greg left, whatever, you know, what he's thinking is that this means that that Greg slipped out without Debbie realizing it. So the way he's interpreting it is that Greg is stealthy enough to slip away out of women's beds. Right. And in and out of rooms and homes um, without anybody noting. And so that also could be problematic at trial. Right. Um, Doesn't look good. Yeah. Definitely does not. It, It could potentially not look good. We did get a question actually from a listener. There's a couple of things about how the question is worded that tells me the listener does not live in the United States, but perhaps from England or the UK, because uh, she spells defense with a C and says solicitor instead of lawyer in her um, <laughs> in her question. But I think that another. I'm, I'm just. I'm not going to read her whole question. It's basically about why prosecutors would offer pleas, you know, if they think the person's guilty, wouldn't they want to take them to trial? Or if uh, does that mean that their case is weak? So Greg did say no to what most attorneys would consider a good plea deal. Does a plea reflect how strong the state thinks their case is all the time, some of the time? In this case, what do you guys think? Most of the time. I mean, there there can be like, you can have cases where, I mean, it's not uncommon to have bluffing, where the prosecutor comes in with something like, I want a thousand years. And they know their case is weak, but you want to start from a high position and bargain down. Usually, if everything's working right, a weak case that the prosecutor still wants to bring will get a pretty favorable plea offer in the end. Um, because you, you can't take every case to trial. There's zero possibility that could work. Like you can only take a tiny fraction of cases to trial. So most right. have to plea out. Right. And it is, and Karen just was wondering, like, why would a deal even be offered to someone that they believe planned the murder of two people in cold blood, like surely they would never want someone like that to get out. But so can you just do a quick thumbnail sketch of why that would happen for someone who doesn't live in the United States and like, you know, kind of how, why every case can't go to trial? Just I don't, I don't think it'd be that different actually under like the Commonwealth systems either. Um, But Susan, if a prosecutor believes that this guy premeditated two murders, offering, offering a plea deal of manslaughter, doesn't that seem odd? No. I mean, they were going to let Dennis Perry basically walk out of jail that day before he went to... I mean, they if they have a weak case to them, it's better to have the murderer get a sentence than have him walk away scot-free. So it is a sign of the strength of their evidence. When they think there's a good chance they might lose, but they're confident the guy's guilty, they might do that because at least they got something. Yeah. Right. Right. 
So we have a repeat question. I think we've gotten this question every week that we've done this addendum pretty much. Uh, Lisa wants to know <laughs> about other possible suspects. Did Greg find anyone in his own research? Is there mention of suspects in Greg's uh, journals? Rabia, what can you tell us at this time, if anything? Yes, what I will tell you is episodes 10 and 11 will be all about alternate suspects. Hmm. So one final question for me. Um, Greg's daughter was born after he was in prison, which is obviously tragic on a number of levels, whether or not he's guilty or not. That's not a great situation. I don't know if you can speak to this, but what has this been like for him as a parent who's never actually had the opportunity to in person spend time with his child outside of the prison setting? I mean, I think it's been excruciating. I think it's been, you know, it would be hard on anybody. And it certainly also watching his daughter, I mean, she's like 19, 20 years, she's 20 years old, I think now. Um, a lovely young woman. I met her, uh, Susan, as well. And it's been hard on her too. And there's, and I'll talk about this in uh, one of the episodes about kind of like, what happened with Becky and their daughter um, and how all that unfolded on the outside while Greg was in prison. Um, he also had to fight a custody battle while he was in prison uh, for to keep his parental rights, and that was really tough. Um, so, yeah, it's it's that's probably been one of the hardest things, I'm sure, to see his daughter grow up without him. And, I mean, just the letters. I have so many letters and, and cards that, you know, she's written and, and they're, like, you know, from more recent ones to the ones in like the, that little child handwriting. And it's pretty heartbreaking to see it. Susan, do you have thoughts? I mean, it, it's, that's, there were a lot of tragedies in her life and her dad going to prison before she was born, just the first of them. Sarabia, so you've been promising and I'm uh, feeling confident that next week we are actually going to get to the trial. Yes. Uh, <laughs> what can we look forward to in next week's episode about this case? Um, you know, so in next week's episode, we're going to see kind of like what was the state's actual case, what convinced a jury um, to convict. And we are going to be looking at all the results of all the forensic testing that we've mentioned in the past because there was a slew of forensic testing. I think that's really important. People want to know uh, what were the results of all that testing. Uh, there were, the TBI lab was involved, but also the FBI lab was involved in some of the testing. And then look at the kind of the seminal witnesses, I think, that convinced the jury of Greg's guilt, but then take apart some of their statements too, um, to show, you know, some of the inconsistencies and, or contradictions, you know, and, and so, the, and, and that's pretty much it. And then the following episode, I think is the one it's, it's kind of like, we're like slowly getting up to the, the crest of the mountain right now <laughs> with, with next week's episode. And then it's going to be like an unraveling of everything. And I think that's what listeners are really going to look forward to. Yeah. That's what I'm looking forward to. I love the unraveling from this yeah. team. It's the best thing that you guys do. Susan, I can't wait to hear you unravel. Yeah. Well, I'm excited <laughs> to get to, well, not excited. Um, the, the backstory here for the prosecutor and some of the people in law enforcement. All right. Well, I can't wait to hear it. So for this week, thank you so much, both you and uh, Rabia, for chatting to me about this case. It continues to be fascinating, and I'm really enjoying both listening and getting the chance to talk to you about it every week. So thanks, guys. Mm -hmm. 
Thanks so much for listening to the Undisclosed Addendum and the Greg Lance series. You can follow the show on social media at Undisclosed Pod, and you can ask questions for future Addendum episodes on Twitter or Facebook. Just use the hashtag UDAddendum. Remember, the sponsors of Undisclosed make it possible for this team to continue doing their great work. So please support all the sponsors you hear about on this show and buy their products. Our executive producer is the great Methel Telhan. Audio production for the Addendum is done by the wonderful Hannah McCarthy. Our theme song is by Patrick Cortez. If you want to hear more of me, check out my true crime and pop culture podcast, Crime Writers On, or listen to These Are Their Stories, the Law and Order and SVU podcast. And of course, this whole thing would not be possible without the incredible organizational skills and work and diligence of the amazing executive producer, Methel Telhan. Special thanks to Kevin Flynn, my partner in crime and life, for picking up some of my work so I could host this series. Thanks to Rabia, Susan, and Colin, who continue making Undisclosed a fulfilling and fun part of my podcasting life. And on behalf of everyone at Undisclosed, thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week. A road is just a road, but a Jeep SUV isn't just an SUV. Come see for yourself at the Jeep Start Something New sales event. During Owner Appreciation Month, finance get $3,750 total cash allowance on select 2020 Grand Cherokee Laredo 4x4 models in dealer stock the longest. On oldest 20% inventory of 2020 Jeep Cherokee Laredo models as of 1-3-2020 in dealer stock. Financing for well-qualified buyers through Chrysler Capital. Not all buyers will qualify. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery by 2-3-2020. Jeep is a registered trademark. A road is just a road, but a Jeep SUV isn't just an SUV. Come see for yourself at the Jeep Start Something New sales event. During Owner Appreciation Month, finance get $3,750 total cash allowance on the purchase of select 2020 Jeep Compass Latitude 4x4 models in dealer stock the longest. On oldest 20% inventory of 2020 Jeep Compass Latitude models as of 1-3-2020 in dealer stock. Financing for well-qualified buyers through Chrysler Capital. Not all buyers will qualify. Residency restrictions apply. Take delivery by 2-3-2020. Jeep is a registered trademark. A road is just a road, but a Jeep SUV isn't just an SUV. Come see for yourself at the Jeep Start Something New sales event. During Owner Appreciation Month, finance get $3,750 total cash allowance on select 2020 Grand Cherokee Laredo 4x4 models in dealer stock the longest. On oldest 20% inventory of 2020 Jeep Cherokee Laredo models as of 1-3-2020 in dealer stock. Financing for well-qualified buyers through Chrysler Capital. Not all buyers will qualify. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery by 2-3-2020. Jeep is a registered trademark.